listening to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Miranda Donnelly. (laughs) Yes, that's right. New name, same host. Just a few days ago on July 25th, I got married and I wanted to include the OT Uncorked listeners in the celebration. So this episode, we're doing something a little different. I'm answering questions from you, the listeners, that I have received over the last few weeks. So on the show, I typically feature my guest stories and ask them all sorts of questions about their own OT journey and where they are today, what's exciting for them, and maybe their niche area of expertise. But today, the tables are turning and I am gonna be sharing more of my OT journey. So while I share a little bit about my background and uncork your questions, I am also uncorking a bottle of red wine called Crush by The Dreaming Tree. And I chose that to celebrate my recent wedding and my forever crush, my husband. So I'll let you know my thoughts on the wine at the end of the episode. One of my favorite questions to ask other OTs that I meet or interview on the show is, what drew you to OT? So I was really excited to get a similar question from a listener who asked, why did you become an OT? And then another one asked how I decided to get into neuro rehab and then now into research. And my OT journey started young and is near and dear to my heart. I have not shared this part of me on the podcast yet, but I'm really hoping that my story resonates with someone who's listening and maybe even reminds some of us why being an OT is the most amazing and special job in the world. So I hope you enjoy this and then I also answer more listener questions after I give a little bit more of my background. So when I was in kindergarten, yes, my OT journey starts all the way back in kindergarten, one of my classmates had a disability. Her name was Michaela, and she used a wheelchair. She was a lot tinier than the rest of us, and she couldn't speak or move much. She had a little bit of movement in her neck, and she could make facial expressions, but for the most part, that was kind of the extent of her movement. And looking back now with my OT lens, I could definitely be a little bit more descriptive. What I just shared is kind of what I thought in the moment as a kindergartner. Now I could probably describe her as having very low muscle tone, severe uh, dysarthria. She had really um, poor neck and trunk stability. And there's plenty of other clinical sounding jargon I could use. But throughout my OT journey, I have actually intentionally avoided going down the clinical rabbit trail of thinking about Michaela. Instead, I just think of her as my best friend and my inspiration, and that has really just helped me every step of the way on my OT journey. So throughout kindergarten and the next few years, we were best friends. I would push her wheelchair whenever we left the classroom for you know art class or recess. She would sit next to me at story time. We'd play in the pool together with her mom's help, of course, on the weekends. And from pretty much the first year of our friendship, so in kindergarten, I was sure I wanted to be a special educator. I loved helping Michaela, being her buddy and her helper, and just really feeling like an assistant to her special educator that was in the classroom with us. As we got just a little bit older, all of our friends, including me, started playing sports, you know, 
in elementary school, that's often the times when rec soccer leagues really start to pick up and people are doing t-ball and swim team. And I did all of that as well, but Michaela couldn't join those teams because of her disability. So a group of our friends started a Girl Scout troops that we could all have activities that were adaptable for Michaela and that we could all participate in together. So as part of our Girl Scout troop, we did crafts, we went on field trips, we played games, we went to day camps, and we did all sorts of other things to earn badges and just kind of play together. So when we went to camp, I noticed the picnic tables didn't extend far enough on the ends to accommodate her wheelchair. So while the rest of us ate our sandwiches at the picnic table, she had to use a lap tray and it was about a foot off the end of the table where her wheelchair would fit um, and she would have to you know, eat her, her special food away from the group. And um, another thing I noticed was when we would go on nature walks, I noticed that the roots and the rocks got in the way of her wheelchair. So a lot of times we would end up needing to turn back earlier than the rest of the group or maybe just wait patiently at the trailhead for the group to come back so we could do something else that Michaela could participate in. Um, and I just remember coming home from camp and I was so upset that even Girl Scouts, the activity that we, um, all of you know, all of Michaela's friends had chosen that we could all do together, um, had barriers to her participating in it. So I was very upset. And I realized that instead of being a special educator, I should be an architect and design places where people with disabilities can be with their friends. So I was sure that's what I wanted to do. And uh, by second grade, actually, one of my favorite hobbies in my spare time became drawing floor plans on graph paper and designing different modifications to public spaces that I saw. I'd always be brainstorming what else we could do to make places more accessible um, for Michaela and other people who maybe had some of the same challenges you know, navigating the environment. Of course, I didn't use all of that language, but now my OT brain's thinking that way. So where my uh, elementary school math and engineering skills lacked in my designs, I had a lot of passion for it. And that's really an avenue I thought I was going to be pursuing. But by the time we reached third grade, Michaela had already repeated two grades because the traditional classroom settings and setup and curriculum of the higher grades just really was not designed to accommodate her needs, especially because up until this point, testing is not a huge part of the curriculum, right? There's a lot more play-based activities and while they may be grading you, it's not quite the same as it is when you start to get into the higher grades. So at that point, it really had not mattered much. They couldn't test her learning or even her cognitive function in a standardized way. We based all of our communication with her on these nuanced facial expressions. Since she couldn't speak um, and she could not sign because of her low muscle tone. So the people closest to her, like me, uh, her family, some of our other friends, we learned to read her like a book over time. And so those facial expressions were plenty to play with her and to just enjoy time together and even get through classroom activities together. Um, but once we got to that age where there was more testing, she actually transferred to a school that could provide a little bit more support in that area. So one weekend when I was over at her house to play and some of our favorites were um, jumping on the trampoline. So obviously she was not jumping, but she loved when I would kind of bounce um, next to her and so that she could kind of pop up off the, off the trampoline a little bit. We had a lot of fun playing games on there and we'd play Barbies and um, we'd play spa, you know, paint, paint nails and everything. 
And while we were doing that one weekend, her mom showed me a new tool that they had given Michaela at school. It was a plastic headband, so she wore that, you know, the way you normally wear a headband, and then she had a stretchy headband too, um, like one of the athletic ones, wrapped around her forehead and the back of her head. So she had these two headbands on, and then secured between the two was this small and very light dowel rod. And so when Michaela sat up in her wheelchair, her mom removed the neck support that usually kept her head upright. And then Michaela slowly moved her neck to point to, you know, just a very basic communication board they had. And all of a sudden, with this simple but genius hack, Michaela was able to show the world what we already knew, that she was smart and that she was learning. And all of a sudden, her academic world just completely opened up. They started using the new head pointer to test her on basic learning just to see how much she knew and how much she had retained over time. And at the time, I thought, duh, of course she knows things. She's smart. You know, I had been communicating with her for years. Her family had been, her other friends. We knew she was smart. But now, um, now just, I guess as an adult, but also having gone through OT school, even though I'm not a pediatric practitioner, just learning about all the barriers that get in the way of people participating when they have a disability. Some of them are part of the school system, some of them are outside of the school system, but there were so many barriers to others seeing what we saw in her. So I was so excited that this device just opened up so many doors for her and it was really a simple device, but it took that long for someone to suggest it. And I thought, I wanna do that for other kids. So later on, when I got to middle school, I realized it was her occupational therapist who had come up with the tool, and my mind was set on OT as a career. So we transitioned from special educator to architect, and finally to occupational therapy. So I did my middle school career project about occupational therapy, and I never really looked back. But I want to rewind just a little bit here. So at the point that she was given this pointer and communication board, Michaela was in fourth grade and because she had been delayed in school, I was already in fifth grade and she was just really rocking her schooling and doing really well. They were finally just able to show so much of what she was capable of and really just start to even tap into her potential and I know she was really proud of all the work she was doing and um, I could tell it was just a huge relief for her to be able to communicate to more people, um, especially in school because she loved school. But because of her disability, she had a really bad immune system and would get sick really easily. A lot of times she wouldn't even go into school or they'd go out of town for some of the winter months when the flu season's at its worst because she was just so susceptible to getting sick. And that November of her fourth grade year, my fifth grade year, she actually ended up in the hospital. And I was so excited to visit her when she got her strength up. Uh, her mom kept saying, when she's stronger, you can come see her. And so when I got the call to my classroom that my parents were there to pick me up, I was skipping around the room. I don't even know if that's cool for a fifth grader. Probably it wasn't at the time, but I was so excited. I was skipping around, I gathered all my things, and I told everybody in that classroom that I was going to visit my best friend. So when I got to the school lobby, I saw the look on my parents' face and my heart sunk and I knew, and I knew that my best friend who had been my inspiration and, you know, honestly the closest thing to an angel that I think I will ever meet on earth had died. I just took that one look and everything changed. Um, 
and grieving is weird and it's hard and um, thankfully by the grace of God and really great parenting that was um, given to me, I grieved by volunteering with other kids with different needs. Um, I really started to lean in earlier than a lot of my peers into career options because I just wanted to find a way even through OT, but I wanted to find a way to honor her and just make sure her memory wasn't lost. And I felt like that really motivated a lot of what I did moving forward into middle school and high school and beyond. It's really the heart of why I became an OT. I share that story pretty openly with people close to me and people I meet face to face because that, you know, that story is really close to me and it's personal, but you all have been with me on this journey too, and I want to share it with you as a way of encouraging us all um, to keep doing the great work of occupational therapy. And I also share it as a way to honor her memory. You know, this is why we do what we do, no matter what population or age range we work with. It's stories like this that just fill us and give us fuel to continue just continue on and continue making a difference in the world. So I really wanted to share that with you guys today. So kind of transitioning into what happened beyond that. Um, after she died, I continued wanting to be an OT, right? And I prepared myself to apply to OT schools. And I decided to go to um, Towson University in Maryland. And I do see a lot of discussion on online OT forums about how to choose the right school for you. And in the past, people have reached out to me asking for advice about this. So even though no one asked about it for the q and I'm going to include it anyway. So one of my biggest drivers, honestly, for wanting to go to Towson was because I love the state of Maryland, which sounds like a really silly reason to choose a school. But I grew up in Pennsylvania and my older sister and dad went to college in Maryland and my sister still actually lives in Maryland. So once Towson was on my radar because of its location, I actually started to realize that I loved its proximity to so many health systems in the sort of greater Baltimore area. And just I have to give a little shout out to the Shepherd Pratt uh, Hospital, which is where actually William Rush Dunton, if you think back to your OT philosophy and history class, William Rush Dunton was one of our profession's founders, and he is a physician, and he worked there at Shepherd Pratt. So Shepherd Pratt does have a, a place in OT history, and I actually did one of my level two fieldworks there. It is right next to the campus. Actually, I think Towson's campus used to be owned by Shepherd Pratt. So that's just sort of a cool way that I felt like OT history really worked into my experience. And I also really loved that Towson had its own faculty practice. They call it the Institute for Wellbeing. Lots of schools have something similar, but that's not a standard thing in all OT programs. So we had the opportunity to work with people across the lifespan in a space that was both clinical and educational. And so I got to work with young children in a preschool program all the way up through uh, older adults in the community at senior centers and um, stroke survivors with chronic stroke. So something else I found appealing, and, I, and I'm kind of just listing these so that folks who are looking at OT schools can start to think, you know, what does that thought process look like for choosing the right school? So I also found the five-year bachelor's to master's track appealing, so I would be able to get both my bachelor's and master's in five years. I actually ended up getting two bachelor's and one master's in five years. It was jam-packed, but it was, it was great. That 
type of program I don't think is being offered at quite as many schools just because the OTD is starting to become more prominent. But if you can find something like that and you're sure you want to be an OT straight out of high school, then I think that's a great option and it'll save you some money most likely in the long run. Um, but when I hear people or you know read people on the uh, OT forums deliberating and stressing about which school to choose, I, I do get it. It's a big deal and it matters. And I want, if that's you, I want you to feel validated that your choice of school does matter. It absolutely matters. And I also want you to find comfort in knowing that the ACOAT standards that we have in our profession means that wherever you go, you are going to get a quality education and you're going to be prepared to be an OT. So while it's a huge decision, I think sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, but I promise you, you will be an OT if you go through these programs, no matter which one you choose. So I would say from there, trust your gut. And I, I can honestly say I don't know many people who regret their choice of OT school. And if you do, you'll adapt because that's just what we do as OTs. But that tangent aside, uh, back to my story a little bit. So I enrolled at Towson. I was eager to become a pediatric therapist. After my experience with Michaela, I was just so driven to serve other children. And I had a dream of opening up my own practice where I would you know, both serve clients in a more traditional role. And then I would also consult on community building projects to make the world a little more accessible since my uh, architect dreams had to be traded in for OT. No regrets there, but I did want to continue in that vein of thought of, of really just adapting the environment. So I love children and I love pediatric therapy. And honestly, peds OTs are the best kind of people. And I can say that because I'm not one. Um, but I realized during my pediatric training that while I love kids, I also really didn't think I had the energy to be around kids all day and then come home to kids in the evening. Now, I don't have kids yet, but I did babysit quite a lot during OT school and found that on the days I was at field work, I was more tired and less energetic with the kids I babysat. And so thinking ahead to the life I want in the future and realizing that I actually was also loving working with adults, I decided to pursue the adult track a little more heavily. But I have to say I give a lot of credit to teachers and therapists who work with children all day and are also just their best selves for their own families. I think it takes a really special kind of person to do that. And I think it's totally possible. I just could tell that wasn't probably going to be possible for me. So I adapted. So in addition to kind of realizing that adults are pretty cool too, which was new to me, um, I really dug into my neuro courses and I loved learning about the nervous system, especially the brain and how functional recovery is possible even when there is severe and serious neurological damage. So when I started applying that knowledge in fieldwork and community placements, I just loved the conversations with my adult clients about some of the real impact of neurological diseases. You know, I had learned about sort of the physiological anatomical piece. I learned from the holistic OT perspective. And I just loved those conversations. And I still enjoy when clients share with me the challenges and changes, you know, um, for example, in their intimate relationships, you know, what neurologic injury does to that. Because many of my patients have truly struggled with that. And there's not always health practitioners or other folks that really want to hear that from them um, and so those conversations felt so meaningful you know or maybe they would express 
disappointment with their current function or how much they really missed being in the workforce. Uh, Maybe their disability prevented them from going back to work in the same capacity or in any capacity. Um, Or maybe they would even share their successes and some of the progress that was so maybe even minimal to an outsider, but that they had just waited so long for and were so proud of. Um, So even though these conversations can be an emotional roller coaster, they can be really hard, sometimes even depressing, um, they're also just so raw and vulnerable and truly it has been a privilege to be invited into their lives and to be invited to that conversation. And I would say that is one of my favorite parts of being an OT. Even in research, I get to listen, to hear, not always to respond or give advice, just to hear, to validate. I get to support them in taking those next steps that are going to lead them to just being so much more satisfied with their lives, whatever that looks like. And I just, I just wonder how much better than that can I get? You know, I think we're in the right profession. So, you know, before this though, I always envisioned myself as a pediatric therapist. And now that I work with adults with neurologic injury, I, I really can't imagine it any other way. Um, but This actually transitions into another question that I got from the listener Q&A. Someone asked, what do you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself as an OT student? So I actually have two answers to this, uh, both as a reflection of my own experience and then also as advice for current and future OT students so that you can kind of hear where I'm coming from with this advice. So I would say that you should treat every course field work and experience like it is going to make you the best therapist you can be that sounds super obvious i get it of course you should be doing that but uh and usually you know ot students don't need a whole lot of motivation to do their best because a lot of times we are eager and motivated but i do notice a lot of complaining and i noticed this both as a student when i was the one complaining and as someone who's actually instructed ot students in an ot program So like I said, I'm guilty of this too. This is not finger pointing. This is just being really honest with you. So when a course or experience in OT school does not perfectly align with our career goals, for example, when choosing Fieldworks, I was not thrilled that I got placed in an ICU because when I graduated, I didn't have the hands-on skills I needed to be an inpatient rehab or even outpatient rehab therapist, which is what I wanted to do. And at that point, I was you know, maybe going back and forth a little bit, but regardless of which population, I, I really thought I wanted to do inpatient or outpatient rehab, not acute or, you know, the super critical care uh, component. And so I was not thrilled that that was my placement, but it was a good experience. And I became very comfortable with high acuity patients with the lines and the tubes and the sounds, the urgency but also the very slow nature of the ICU and now I can look back and see that it prepared me for situations in inpatient rehab when some of my patients had moments of decline Um, some of them had medical complexities that were not normal in that setting and because of my experience in the ICU as an OT student I could relate to the patients better in inpatient rehab and I had this calm when something went wrong or there was a a, a weird beeping sound or there was a patient that had a lot of lines and tubes I felt a lot more comfortable than some other folks who had did not have that acute ICU experience so um, in fact many of my patients in inpatient had come to us after staying in the main hospital for a long time many of them made visits to the ICU as part of their continuum of care So 
it also helped me because then I kind of knew generally the kind of care they received there and that helped me provide better care and empathize with them as they transitioned from the very slow ICU where your OT goal might be to sit up at the edge of the bed without desatting um, and then transitioning to this inpatient rehab setting where you're doing three plus hours of therapy a day and it's intense. So I would say, going back to that piece of advice, treat everything like it's going to help you. Even if it seems completely misaligned with your career goals, it will come back and be helpful. But I have another example of that too that I want to get to. So I also hear a lot of complaining about research classes, especially if you do a combined program or you do back-to-back masters and OTD programs, which I know is starting to become a bit more common. Lots of students complain about the research classes and I have heard it time and time again, sometimes from my own mouth. Um, This idea of, I just wanna treat patients. Why do I have to take so many of these stats classes and research methods classes? And now as a PhD student, I appreciate the research classes I took. And at the time, I did not anticipate the research would be a core part of my career, but here I am and it is. And so I'm very grateful for those experiences. And also because those research experiences in OT school helped me be a more evidence-based practitioner and both in my practice and in my research track, I can ask more curious evidence-based questions and I can really use that that scientific method to my patient's advantage really. So even if you don't like the research classes, I promise you uh, there are takeaways from it that will enhance your practice. So just stick with them. And all of that to say, enjoy OT school too. Soak it all in. You may not want to be a mental health practitioner, but just dig into that coursework like it's your dream setting. And I can assure you what you learned in one practice setting will absolutely be relevant at some point in your career. And I think it will have been worth your time upfront investing in yourself. Okay, so that was the first piece of advice to that question. Um, My second bit of advice and reflection is not to be frustrated by differences and maybe even inconsistencies between your classes or professors. So I remember in OT school getting so frustrated when each professor had their own way of grading therapy notes. So we would do, you know, practice case studies or even from field work, we'd have to write up a note and submit it. And I felt like by the time I got a hang of one person's style of note writing, it was the next semester and that professor had a totally different style of writing notes. And I got annoyed assuming that they just didn't consult one another about how they were teaching us to be OTs and how to write notes. And this is actually a common complaint I've heard among my peers too, you know, when we were in OT school. And then when I actually got into practice as an OTR, I realized that the differences in note writing style was actually a huge asset. Um, Because while there's definitely wrong ways to write treatment notes and evaluations, right, I also learned that there are many right ways to do it. So instead of being complacent and learning one style and just being committed to that for my career, I had been given the opportunity to see a whole spectrum of right kinds of notes. So by the time I learned this and began to appreciate it and really just felt like I was able to write better notes because I had seen so many different styles, I started co-instructing courses for OTD students. And as part of that role, I graded treatment and evaluation notes alongside three other OTRs. And not surprisingly, the four of us all had slightly different writing styles and preferences for organization or wording. And 
I cannot tell you how many emails we got that semester from students voicing frustration that we all gave them different advice. And I actually, I really get it because I was in their shoes not that long ago. I can completely relate. But I tried to convey that having so many perspectives is actually of benefit to them. They all scored very well, so I recommended, you know, try not to focus on the grades or the point values. You're all doing great, but lean into the advice. Ask us questions about our advice. You know, grill us about it. Why did you use this wording? Why would you prefer this over that? Um, Ask us why we have those preferences, and then use all of that information to develop, you know, your own style that works for you. So that's what I tried to recommend to them. And so I continue to give that advice to others, but also to myself, because I think it's still really important in my current practice and even in my research. Okay, so I also get a lot of questions about what it's like to be a PhD student. As you've heard, I mentioned research a lot in my PhD and going kind of into that route and and research being a big part of my career. So I actually frequently get emails and direct messages asking if the PhD is the right route for that particular person, um, you know, what the day-to-day looks like, and that could be a whole nother episode. So I'm actually going to hold off answering those until a future episode where we will talk more about future options um, for advanced learning, research, PhD, OTD, all of that. But for now, I am going to answer two more questions on this episode. So the first of those last two is, um, I was asked for advice for new grad OTs, specifically how to gain confidence working on ADL goals with physical therapy as needed and how to advocate for what OT goals the client needs. So I'm going to preface this by saying I am also a recent grad OT, so I invite you to take my advice for what it is and also add to the conversation if you're a more experienced practitioner or just have another perspective, you know, you can share that on Instagram, Facebook, wherever we're connected. I would love to hear other views on this. But this question resonated with me because I lacked confidence when I started working with other providers and I still lack confidence sometimes. So one thing I have done is just to make sure the client is actually on board with the goals. In some settings where basic ADLs are a major focus, like in acute settings and even in inpatient rehab where ADL goals are the norm, um, and we definitely communicate with our patients about what they're going to work on in OT. You know, we don't keep that a secret. And some of these are just pretty standard tasks that maybe we want to make sure they can do safely and effectively before they go home. It can still help to just directly talk to your clients about what goals you should set together. So be specific, tell them you're setting goals and actually decide with them what's most important to them. On the occasions where I made ADL goals for the patient, I had a much harder time speaking up during rounds and justifying my place in the room during co-treatments. However, when I made goals with patients, I usually ended up getting a backstory or an emotional response about why that mattered so much to them. For example, I could have just set a goal that they were going to be able to do lower body dressing with setup, but when I talked to them and they told me a backstory about how they were in the military and putting on their uniform every day that was nicely starched and pressed and in pristine condition and how hard it was for them now that they couldn't even get their own pants on. That just struck me and gave me the confidence to advocate for those goals that we needed. 
because then it was no longer about increasing their score on the FIM or one of the other ADL assessments, or even just about getting them home safely, which was of course still important, but it was way more about that patient and who they are, how they see themselves, and what's going to give them dignity and what's going to help them get out of bed every morning and be excited to go through the rest of their day. When I got those responses, I felt a lot more confident communicating the importance of the ADL goals to the PTs, SLPs, doctors, and nurses during rounds. And I also felt that my fellow health professionals respected what I had to say because I was obviously taking into account the client's needs and that's the goal of everyone in that room. So that definitely gave me a lot more confidence with the goal setting piece, especially when it's an ADL goal. Now, when it comes to co-treating, I also have tended to sometimes yield to the co-treating therapist because I've been maybe afraid of stepping on their toes, so to speak, or literally depending on the setting, but it is something I have not mastered yet. I have to be honest. I will share one thing I've learned though, which is when I talk with the co-treating therapist before even going into the room and we establish a plan and roles for each of us, I feel more confident. I also think it's helpful to reflect with them afterwards about how it went to improve for next time and also just to be aware of anything else in that dynamic that maybe was not helpful for the patient or got in the way of treatment. So if you're working with a more seasoned counterpart, they probably will appreciate that you're trying to learn from them and with them. But also if it's a recent grad therapist, they'll probably have a lot of the same concerns, even if they don't show it, and will likely appreciate the opportunity to learn as well. So I think I think the common theme here is just communication, but really communicating before and after and during to make sure that the care you're providing is skilled and that you have a chance to bring what OT can to the table in a really nice complimentary way with what the other PT or SLP is bringing to the table because everybody wants what's best for the patient. And so if you can communicate about that, I think that goes a really long way. So that question made me reflect a lot on my own practice and how I've not always navigated my relationship with my fellow health team as well as I could have. I do tend to lack confidence in speaking up when others are very confident. And I often have to remind myself that we are all on the same team and the best thing to do is communicate our areas of concern with each other. And um, it's definitely easier said than done, but I would say it's been totally worth it whenever I have been able to step up and have the confidence. So that is my answer for that. But again, if you have other thoughts, please comment and we will all share in this conversation together. And our final question of the episode, why did you start the OT Uncorked podcast? I love this question. And when I was in OT school, I really enjoyed having these top-notch guest speakers and just other people come to our classroom, both other OTs, people in other professions, and people with lived experience. And my school did a great job of bringing in people with different perspectives, and I just loved learning from them. So as I was nearing graduation, I started to realize that I wouldn't have the same learning experiences when I entered the workforce. I knew I'd miss those conversations with other professionals, and I really wanted to find a way to still talk with such interesting and influential people in the field of OT. Um, To be honest, I just really wanted to sit down with them with a glass of wine and pick their brains. So I had the idea to start a podcast because I I had a feeling there were others out there that had the same desire as me, you know, to keep learning from the best and constantly be asking questions and being curious. So 
that is what I'm trying to do on OT Uncorked. I connect with, interview, learn from amazing people in the field of OT and share it with you. So we uncork a hot topic in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine because to me, there's not much better than sitting down with an interesting person and sharing in a glass of my favorite beverage. So OT Uncorked has kind of become the new happy hour for me. When I started the podcast, I had no idea what I was doing. I did not know how to use any editing software. I had no idea what an RSS feed was. Remember I was at work and I quickly Googled RSS feed because I kept hearing it. Um, I didn't know that I even needed a hosting platform. I had never thought about purchasing a microphone or a domain name on the internet. And I am still very much learning the ins and outs of hosting a podcast but it has been such a joy to learn and to share and to grow alongside other OT podcasters, um, OT bloggers, and just our greater online community of OTs. So if you have ever listened to a past episode of mine or are listening to this one or messaged me on social media, sent me an email, uh, left a review on a podcast player, or sent a question for this episode, thank you. I may have started the podcast for the selfish reason of wanting to talk to interesting people, but honestly, the people listening and interacting, that's what's kept me going and what has encouraged me to keep sharing in this awesome journey together. Podcasting is time-consuming and hard work, actually, and you have all just made it worth it, so I truly thank you for everything you've done on this journey so far and I hope you'll stick with me moving forward too. And I hope you enjoyed this special episode of OT Uncorked where we uncorked your questions, my OT history, and a bottle of wine. This episode I am drinking a glass of the Dreaming Trees Crush Red Blend in celebration of my recent wedding and my forever crush, my husband Sean. So. Crush is from the north coast of the U.S. and it's a red blend. It's definitely a bold wine and it's on the drier side of things, I would say. It has some very like fruit forward flavors. So what's popping out to me the most right now is the cherry flavor, but it's not tart like as if you're just popping a cherry into your mouth, but it's very well balanced and um, with some of the other fruit flavors and it's really smooth there's even um, like a little bit of an oaky flavor coming through so I have also tried other wines from the dreaming tree in the past and actually their cab sob is one of my favorite go-to's so you can buy this wine at most stores that sell wine and it usually the red blend is gonna run between 10 and 15 dollars but I have seen some of their wines up more towards like 2025, so that's going to depend on the state, the store, and the specific wine from them. But so far, I have not gone wrong with a wine from the Dreaming Tree. And I would definitely recommend this specific wine, Crush, to anyone looking for a pretty flavorful but well-made red blend. Well, that is it for this episode. Thank you again to all who submitted questions. If you have more, send them my way, and I would love to answer your question on a future episode. If you like OT Uncorked, could you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or really wherever you listen to podcasts? 
reviews actually help new listeners find OT on Court. So uh, the more you share it with a friend or even just leave a review or give it a rating, uh, the better connected we as an OT community can be. Thank you again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.